You're listening to episode 64 of the Urban Yogi Podcast featuring Dr. Julie Steinhauer. In 2000, Dr. Steinhauer entered her last year of optometry school at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, prepared to join a practice that focused solely on eye disease management when she realized her true passion always has and always would lie in working with children. It was during this time that she began traveling and shadowing other optometrists' vision therapy practices in hopes that she would one day add therapy to her practice. Before opening Vision for Life, Dr. Steinauer owned and operated Jersey Family Vision Care in Jerseyville, Illinois for nine years. In 2011, she decided to close that practice and focus solely on providing developmental vision care to the greater Edwardsville area. Vision for Life opened in April 2012. She's now working with patients all over the world, and I'm so happy to be one of them. Dr. Steinhauer is a developmental optometrist specializing in vision-related learning problems, sports vision, and rehabilitative optometry. She is board certified in vision development as a fellow of the College of Optometrists in Vision Development. Dr. Steinhauer is a member of the Illinois Optometric Association, American Optometric Association, College of Optometrists in Vision Development, Optometric Extension Program, Parents Active for Vision Enhancement, the College of Syntonic Optometry, and the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association. I hope I'm saying optometric correctly. <laughs> In her spare time, Dr. Steinhauer enjoys reading, gardening, hiking, playing cards, traveling, baking, decorating, and spending time with her two children, Emma and Ethan. I hope you enjoy my very fascinating interview on strabismus, vaccinations, and vision therapy with this amazing doctor, Dr. Julie. I wanna climb this mountain I know you'd catch me if I fail Hello my friends, welcome to the podcast and this is my lovely guest, Dr. Julie Steinhauer <laughs> We got listeners from all around, the, all around the country of Canada as well as the US and a lot of actually listeners in Japan um, and I wanted to have Julie on the show because I've had strabismus my whole life, which is basically lazy eye. And I was doing some research during the lockdown and I watched this movie called 1986, The Act. I don't know if you've seen this one, Dr. Steinhauer. I uh, haven't, so. It's by a physician named Dr. Andrew Wakefield out of the UK. And it was recommended by my mentor, um, Dr. Christiane Northrup to watch. So I watched it and it's mm -hmm. basically about sort of the underbelly of, of um, vaccinations and how uh, in 1986, the government passed a law basically that you can't sue if you're injured by vaccines. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's intense to get into such a hot button issue right away, but my listeners are used to hot button <laughs> issues, so don't worry. <laughs> okay. um, and so anyway, I started to like, I went to bed that night and I thought, I have a feeling that my strabismus was at least partly caused by all these vaccinations. Mm -hmm. And so I just Googled like vaccinations, strabismus, and then you popped up <laughs> <laughs> and, and you were speaking and you were so cute. You're like, this is a controversial topic. And like, we don't need to get into whether vaccinations are good or bad, but what you have noticed in your practice is sometimes people will come and having had a vaccination within a few hours to a week after, sometimes two, mm -hmm. their eyes will go all wonky. Mm -hmm. And, and then we had a, um, a consult and you explained to me that, 
the adjuvants in vaccinations can cause uh, brain inflammation. And this has been well documented in the mainstream literature. I went on to PubMed and sure enough, even strabismus after vaccination mm -hmm. is largely documented in, in the mainstream literature. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a really, um, it's an emotional topic for people. For me, you know, I had a surgery at a year and four months. Uh, it kind of corrected it in terms of cosmetics. But again, if I look at you with my left eye, I look pretty normal. But then if I switch and look at my right eye, this one goes in. So mm -hmm. I kind of just dominate with one eye and I'm working on that through some vision therapy techniques. But long story short, it was so inspiring. I feel like I met a kindred spirit when I, when I saw you <laughs> connected. Uh, yeah. And I wanted to have you on the show to talk to the audience about vision therapy, vaccinations, and strabismus. And I know now you specialize in strabismus. Is that right? Yeah, probably. Um, well, I've been doing this for 19 years. Wow. We have, yeah, so a while. <laughs> um, I would say in the beginning, I didn't feel like I saw a lot of strabismus. I thought I saw a lot of really basic cases like problems with learning and coordinating the eyes, which affected learning and reading and stuff in school. And about I'm gonna say probably about a good 10 to 12 years ago I started realizing like I think this strabismus thing is getting a lot more crazy than what I ever thought it was okay. and I thought I better get used to this I better get good at it because it felt like everything that walked in my door was strabismus the first thing I felt like I saw a lot of was an outward eye turn called exotropia, which yours is an inward esotropia. Right. And after a couple of years of seeing tons of exo, then I'm like, oh my gosh, I am seeing tons of esotropia. So wow. now literally, uh, kind of the joke in our offices is they're probably, no matter what, just flag them as strabismic. If they're here, they've got it. And it's just up to me to determine what it is. Um, right. We see a lot of variable types of strabismus these days. So there's lots of, lots of um, hypertropia, which is an eye turn up, and even what we call cyclotropia, which is an eye that's kind of turned out like at a diagonal. Um, so just Apparently, strabismus all over. Here. Yeah, strabismus city. <laughs> I've got a slight exo, like this eye's slightly up, and then a slight mm -hmm. esotropia on the right eye. Yeah, so hypertropia and esotropia. Hyper, yeah, hypertropia and then esotropia. Mm -hmm. And then when I look at people with my right eye, that one turns in, so that would be an esotropia. And that and up. And up. Yeah, so it's a little bit wonky. <laughs> um, I wanted to touch on surgery. It's so, um, it's, it's, well, I'll be quite honest. It's really upsetting to me to speak with um, family friends who are um, ophthalmologists because there's such sort of an animosity. And I spoke with a fellow who, um, whose wife comes to my spin classes and they're a lovely couple, but I told him that I was getting into vision therapy and he's, he basically just poo-pooed it and said, and I was reading this book called um, Fixing My Gaze by um, Lynn, uh, somebody Barry. Somebody yeah, Arthur. Sue Barry. Yeah, Sue Barry. And it's so inspiring. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, because he basically went on to say, well, you're too old. There's no way that you can fix anything. And even if you do get a slight improvement, it'll just revert back to what it was. And I said, well, geez, like I'm reading this really inspiring book by Sue Berry. And she was able to gain um, 20, uh, gain uh, stereoscopic vision when she was 56. And he says, well, that's just her belief. Like, <laughs> oh. it's just so upsetting. And it's mm -hmm. just, it's almost like a, it feels like a religion. Yeah, um, and it's yeah. it's not it, for me for them to say things like that. It's not science. It's just their belief, 
right? right. We're starting to see that the brain is plastic right. um, and that you're never too old to make some positive changes. And that's what I like about your approach is you're saying, even if you have had surgeries, uh, you know, where scar tissue has developed, you've got clients who've had multiple surgeries, let's yeah. still work on improving our vision. Like it's never, mm -hmm. we're never too late. Let's, let's be hopeful. So I love that about you. So thanks for bringing that piece. To yeah. The yeah. We, um, I mean, we work with people of all ages. So we start with uh, kids pretty young. So I might get referred uh, patients even around four or five months of age who have strabismus. And so the things that we do with them at that age are clearly a lot different than what we do with older um, patients, but we begin pretty early. So um, just in infancy and few months old, um, all the way up to there's not an age range that is just like, eh, too bad, you're too old. That doesn't exist because the brain is neuroplastic, which we know which basically kind of just means we can really train the brain and teach the brain to learn anything. It's like, you know, can you teach an old dog new tricks? Yeah. <laughs> but um, the only thing that really hampers that is, you know, the potential for maybe um, eye disease or at that particular age, like in our upper years, maybe something like an Alzheimer's or dementia. Obviously, that's a limiting factor. But other than that, there's there's not. If someone doesn't have those conditions, then there's no reason that even someone in their 70s or 80s can't learn how to align and use their two eyes together. That is so, so good to hear. And I'm meeting more and more people through you and through Reddit and stuff. Mm -hmm. Wow, people are getting such great improvements through vision therapy. Um, is yeah. surgery necessary in any case? You know, uh, I've thought about that because it actually comes up with some frequency here. And I always have to tell people I rarely recommend surgery, but I probably recommended surgery in about three cases over the years of patients that I've dealt with in like 19 years. So mm -hmm. I don't recommend it often, but um, in particular, one case kind of comes to mind of a young man that I worked with. I started working with him when he was probably around the age of two or three, mm -hmm. off and on, and he had an inward eye turn and esotropia, but about the amount that you notice when you fixate with your right eye and your left eye turns in, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more, uh, and his was constant. So, you know, the eye was just turned all the time and no matter what he did, he couldn't like switch or control it. Mm. Um, so we worked with him off and on with vision therapy, but esotropes are fairly well known behaviorally to be, um, you can tell me if I'm correct or wrong in this one, <laughs> pretty stubborn. <laughs> So just, uh, yeah, uh, it's kind of a character trait of esotropia is that they tend to be pretty stubborn. And this little guy was like, I don't care if my eyes turned. I don't ever care if it's turned for the rest of my life. And so eventually after working with him off and on, we gave it a really great try. And, and this was literally years, like five to six years I worked with him. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we finally decided that, you know, probably going ahead and doing surgery to get him in the realm of alignment because he just didn't even want to do therapy anymore. Um, would be a great idea once we get him into alignment now get him back into the clinic and now do vision therapy again and you know it was really really successful so i've got a couple of those cases like i said about three but it's something that i i really rarely recommend or suggest because um, surgery is really about altering the muscle and if you just alter the muscle the brain is the control center for the muscle mm -hmm. so the problem is is you move the muscle and the brain's like, what'd you do? 
And so it typically puts the eye back in the exact same location yes. over time. So it requires multiple surgeries typically um, in order to try and correct it. And then, as you mentioned before, with multiple surgeries, we kind of get into this issue. It's like a little sticky of, you know, there can be scar tissue and then that contracts and pulls the eye into a different position altogether than what you even had a problem with to begin with. So it can get really, really, um, really tricky and very cumbersome if they've had a lot of surgery. So, yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is like the case of the fellow who you recommended the surgery to, it's more that he was stubborn and didn't want to really do the exercises. So, right. You know, a young person, I'm thinking, you know, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, you know, first world country. And not once did any of the ophthalmologists or optometrists who I saw from age three months to 17 years old, not once did they ever talk about vision therapy as an option. It's just, it, it almost baffles me, especially because it's so common in Eastern Canada, as well as the States and India. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is kind of um, really interesting. You know, vision therapy has been around for a long time. It started, you know, we've got kind of, knowledge of it back to the 1900s, the kind of early, early phases of 1900s with even light therapy, which we'll probably get to and talk about like syntonics goggles tonight. But, um, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's not that it hasn't been around, but the, the problem, of course, back then was, well, we didn't have social media to put it out there. So you didn't know about it. Um, but now the problem really is that we are very underserved. So there are tons of doctors who are not doing this that could possibly do it but there's a way more uh, people in the world than there are doctors who are able to serve them so you know it's very common for states um states but i say even whole countries to say like gosh in the whole country of whatever there's only three doctors who do this you know and they can't travel 15 hours one direction just to go see the doctor so that's what's a problem for a lot of places yes and it, it's, um, I did some Googling after we spoke because I just wanted to see, is there anybody in Vancouver who does what Dr. Steinauer does? Mm -hmm. well, yes and no. People are, you know, I, I went to see an optometrist. Sorry, I can give you some exercises. You can practice them on your own, but it's going to be so long and so hard and so much money probably won't even be worth it and I was I was actually in tears after that because I kind of like it just the way she said it was so upsetting <laughs> yeah. uh, so I mean I love the way that you said it because you're like well that's good you've only had one surgery that's that's better than my clients who've had eight surgeries you know like, <laughs> yeah. kind of positive and the therapist's like rah, rah, you're screwed <laughs> so, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> so I appreciate your your optimism and it sounds like you have patients like myself and patients with even more severe situations where you, you have been able to help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I was to say, I don't know if I'll be able to kind of pull this off here, but if I can, I have permission to share these pictures from a patient that we worked with. This was a young patient and it just shows a progression of teaching alignment of the eyes. So I'll try to kind of try to kind of zoom in and show this here. Hopefully it will work out. But yeah. if on that top picture is a little guy with a pretty severe eye turn, 
The middle picture was whenever we were working with him in vision therapy. So it was becoming more straight. This yeah. picture is like post therapy. So he has maintained alignment of his eyes um, two years after the fact that we stopped working with him. So, wow. And that's um, yeah. And, you know, uh, we've worked um, in, in, our, you know, kind of in our area of expertise, we're putting numbers to the amount of magnitude of eye turn. And so if you've got something that's kind of considered to be like, there's what's called micro strabismus, which is really small. A lot of doctors are going to miss that. It's small like strabismus. Yeah. So it's like the amount of eye turn. So like a micro is just like, Oh, it's just like barely turned. So you're really not going to be able to pick that one up very, very easily. Doctors that do it like I do every day can find it a little bit easier. Your run of the mill eye doctor will never know it. Um, and so then there's a small angle. Moderate angle, though, is what you have to get into, which by this point, moderate is somewhere around like, um, say, 15 to like, 30 of a measurement that's a pretty big eye turn and then the large are the ones that like well there's no doubt about it you can't tell where they're looking with one eye you know either it's like really pointed in over here or the other's like really pointed out like way out there in no man's land yeah. those most doctors are not going to miss those but they can miss even all the way up to like the moderate level of strabismus for patients right. and so it's very common for people to get referred into my clinic and they don't have that strab diagnosis but i'm like you know when have you not been told that you've got strabismus mm -hmm. um again i think there's a comfort level if i can kind of go back to something that you said you know I've gotten to the point where it's really common for me to see patients who've had like three, four or five surgeries. Um, and we're like, okay, there's no one else to work with you. So either I turn you down and tell you, you know, you're out of luck kid, or I try to figure it out and see what I can do. And, and that's just what I've done over the years. Uh, is kind of like this with pretty much anything that comes my way. I'll get someone who comes in with a new condition, like, Hey, can you treat, you know, X, Y, Z, polka dot, whatever. And I'm like, maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know. Let's try it. Let's see what we get. And we have good success just because we look at the principles of vision and kind of say like, whether or not the strabismus came from, um, you know, a vaccination, again, that's a really hot button topic, but, or it came from, you know, family history. So a genetic component, or maybe it's just environmental, like someone's on their computer way too much. Um, they all kind of act the same so we can train the brain the same. And just because a person's had one, two or four surgeries does not mean that you can't correct that. The more surgeries a person has, though, the more brain is confused about where on earth that eye is even positioned because you've rearranged the eyeball via the muscles four times. Yes. Um, or however many times. So it gets more tricky in those cases, but it still is doable. All I know is that uh, on the medical records, the ophthalmologist has at around seven months, young William developed a very severe eye turn. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm looking at the vaccination schedule for British Columbia, Canada. Well, sure enough, it's a whole slew of vaccinations around that time. So, you know, right. we're, yeah. I think things can all be <laughs> multifactorial, but as, as we've discussed before, like if you took the ingredients in a, in a childhood vaccination or any vaccination, put them on mm -hmm. a spoon and fed them to your child, you'd be locked up. 
Right. The stuff, thimerosal mercury is not supposed to be in a small fetus's blood, a small baby's bloodstream, nor is it to be in an adult's. Um, right. Most of my listeners are, are, I don't even want to say anti-vax, but we are pro-medical freedom. Pro mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that's like the most important thing is like giving people the freedom to do their own research and then make an educated, informed choice. Right. Uh, I was surprised to hear from Del Bigtree that uh, he could find no evidence that there's ever been a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study on any vaccination ever. Um, so that's a bit disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, I think when it comes to, you know, I was, <laughs> when it first started coming up in my clinic, and of course, by this point, I was doing videos. We started doing videos probably back around 2012. And I was doing videos on YouTube back whenever it was not cool at all for doctors to give all the secrets of the farm away. Mm -hmm. And um, my, I was working with my advertising marketing team and they're like, it'll be fine. Just do it. It'll be fine. You know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was getting like the evil eye stink eye from a lot of doctors for doing it. Now everyone and their brother's doing it because they realize it's smart. Um, but the same thing kind of happened like when I, I was like poo-pooed for that and then started coming up here in the last year to two or three years more about vaccinations and, you know, speaking out against it is kind of like, uh, you, know, <laughs> you, know, you have to be cautious about that. So it started coming up to me and I'm seeing more and more conditions kind of coming on for various, uh, usually young but it can be older patients, especially if they're getting something like a flu shot. And I had a vaccine injury myself. So when I started talking about it, boy, we got flooded with hits all over the place of people commenting, calling like crazy. And there's just no denying it. People calling and they were upset or, or they were curious and needing, wanting help? Mostly curious and needing help. The things that were upset were comments, you know, it was like a <laughs> angry person on YouTube, yeah, you know, and they were like, did you not? You know, I was like, oh. Um, so we get those too, you know, but, but all advertising stuff and all like, you know, all press is good press in some ways. Um, but it, when you start digging into it, there's just kind of like, there's no denying it. And again, like, I'm not going to sit here and argue like for or against mm -hmm. my stance on it is you have to make your own informed decision about vaccinations such as I did. But if you look at something like an MMR vaccination, which is measles, mumps, and rubella, which is a combination, that one, and there's a couple of others that are like lumped up combinations that you get at certain phases of, you know, development. Those are the ones that it's like, it's a lot. That's like three in one. So you're getting triple all of the things that we talk about. And again, if we kind of took out some of those things and we put it on a spoon and we said, open up baby will, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> no, that would not happen. We'd be like, what the heck that person would be thrown in the, in jail for um, what they're doing to their child. But we don't think about it in terms of the vaccination because we're like, Oh, it's just a skosh. It's not much, you know, just a little embalming fluid in there is not a problem. Um, but it is because the body can't get rid of these things. The body, you know, embalming fluid is foreign to the body. Thimerosal is foreign to the body. These things are not naturally in the body. And so the brain and the body cannot detox and get them out. It's just like heavy metals too. So, um, you know, I think we just have to look at that and say that there's a direct correlation. 
pretty much this came on my plate today and I was asked, um, talk, you know, came kind of came up, but you know, it causes brain inflammation and the brain inflammation. If you have only so much space within your skull and the brain becomes inflamed due to all of the things that are kind of given to the body and insulting the brain, then what occurs is it doesn't have space to really expand. So when the, the, the inflammation occurs, and this is like just really basic, but when that inflammation occurs, what's going to happen then is that there's a possibility that the kind of neuron connection, so all of those little fast firing neurons that go from one side of the brain to the other to tell your body to do different things, that's impeded or slowed down because it's kind of traveling through like, it's almost like traveling through sludge if there's inflammation, <clears throat> that signal can't travel properly. Mm -hmm. So we can see all kinds of things neurologically come out of this. And so it's no wonder that we see things like strabismus. But the other thing that we see that's really, really common is nystagmus. And this one is becoming, um, wow, it's becoming like the super, super hot thing because in fact, for my clinic, I'm going to guess that 30% of the patients come to me, come to me, and they have nystagmus, which is unheard of. Yeah. So it's the eye that kind of like moves like this all the time. So they will um, usually see the world kind of wiggling or moving. They can call it oscillopsia if the world is like on this jiggle. And um, they can't stop and fixate um, depending. Sometimes it's like this can be up and down. There are different kinds. There's some that kind of rotate and spin. Um, and then, or you can get this kind of a, um, a motion. Um, and that's something that we're seeing as coming out. Like I see a lot of babies um, in the range of about six months to about uh, two and a half to three years um, in young kids that all of a sudden they developed nystagmus. Well, that's a neurological disorder. Where is that coming from and why? Right. In so many cases. It's, and it's so, it's so ironic because I was looking at my medical records and like the day of the surgery when I'm a year and four months old, well, has he had his vaccinations? Make sure he's had his MMR. Like that was like actually in the thing, like click. Yes, he's had all of his vaccinations. Now we're going to go try to, <laughs> they didn't realize, undo mm -hmm. the damage they caused. Yeah. Um, so it sounds sort of like in, in a situation such as mine, perhaps I was born with a weaker eye. I have many baby pictures where they were all looking, both eyes were looking straight in the same direction. Uh, and it, I, we've spoken okay. about it before, but it's like perhaps that vaccination like was like the perfect storm for mm -hmm. a strabismus to develop. Yeah. When there's any kind of asymmetry. So, you know, um, the way that babies, infants develop um, their babies, vision develops is that whenever they're first born it's every very 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 blurry the only thing that they really see are faces close to them and that's even blurry and distorted but that's why they say you know get right up in your baby's face and make smiley faces and talk to them because that's kind of like their world is very close but as they get older their world pushes out their depth of focus pushes but if we've got an asymmetry between the two eyes it's confusing so it causes the brain to kind of have to focus more um, 
uh, harder. So it's a, a harder thing for the brain to focus. So any asymmetry, like if one eye is farsighted and one's nearsighted, or you know, lots farsighted and a little farsighted, that asymmetry is harder for the baby to learn to focus. So again, it could be you know, perfect storm. We've now injected a bunch of you know things into the body that are kind of seen by the body and the neurological system as foreign. And what can happen then after that is, well, maybe now the individual has brain inflammation and they cannot try and justify and make a, you know, an adaptation to what was going on with their asymmetry and vision. And now all of a sudden they're strabismic or now all of a sudden they've developed nystagmus. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like I think of people who get concussions and then they go strabismic. It's mm -hmm. like an insult. The vaccination can be an insult to the brain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. and some people say, well, no, you know, this type of, this aluminum does not cross the blood-brain barrier. But, you know, I, I think that thimerosal, from the research I've been doing, you know, they are coming out and realizing, geez, a, a lot of this stuff does cross the blood-brain barrier. <laughs> now I was going to say then, how is it that we actually are able to test and see that aluminum is actually coming out from our scalp into our hair? Right. Yeah, true that. Because we can test that. So, you know, that's kind of weird if it's like doesn't travel through the whole body. I know we think, again, like the holy grail of the blood-brain barrier. But the thing is, is there's a lot of research out there that the blood-brain barrier can have insults, just like anything else. So only a barrier is only good <laughs> if it protects us and it stays cohesive and together. But there are things that can, you know, insult it and almost cause like holes in it almost like a leaky gut. You know, when a person has leaky gut, it's like they've got small micro perforations in their intestines and stuff kind of leaks around. Yeah. That's not good. We don't want that. Yeah. Right. So in the blood brain barrier, if we have kind of like this little leaky micro perforations in it, because lots of, um, you know, chemical insults have happened to it, then stuff is going to kind of travel through that more readily. We yeah. know that actually to be the case, but mm. it's tough to find that out in literature. People kind of, uh, yeah, they don't we'll want to talk about that as much. It's funny. I even I have um, younger brothers, and they're all quite sort of conservative, or at least more conservative in their thinking than I am. And my brother said, "I, you know, mom was saying you're you're, you know, against vaccinations, against flu shots." And I said, "Well, geez, you know," I said, "Quinn, the way I see it is, it's 2020. We can land a man on the moon, apparently. So, <laughs> we not like put things in vaccinations to preserve them that are a little bit more compatible with the human body than embalming fluid." And he went. <laughs> Okay, well, that's a good point. <laughs> I, I agree. I think that, I think, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, you know, pharma here, so I can't answer for that sort of stuff. But um, I think there's lots of reasons behind why that stuff is in there. But I think that, I think that the science is probably there that we can clean things up a lot. Maybe we just need to hold some feet to the fire to be able to do that um, and produce things that, you know, are going to be viable for preventing disease but not actually you know causing neurological problems yeah. prevent the disease but cause a neurological problem yeah it's very really? strange like come yeah. on <laughs> let's clean it up I, it was funny i had dr northrup on the podcast and she said they put those adjuvants in in her words to rile up the immune system to try to get a response which in some people will not have negative side effects but in mm -hmm. other people, it will make them go autistic for life. 
yeah. or it will cause a strabismus. Like it's, it's, um, you know, some of us are more sensitive than others. And I, I like what you said in a previous conversation, like thimerosal is not meant, it's not naturally found in the human bloodstream. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. 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 And it is meant to kind of excite the system because then you can get your immune response to kind of like attack and then build immunity. Um, but again, we know that some people are maybe more compromised and not as healthy and not as able to handle it where some can, you know, no problem. Um, but we are, you know, kind of, I think maybe as a society, we're building a lot more people who are more susceptible because obviously, you know, I'm susceptible and then I have children and then they're more likely to be susceptible and then it just kind of keeps perpetuating. So we're going to see more and more of these things, especially you know, the insults are coming from food that we eat, the air that we breathe. We could talk about like, what is those trails that go through the sky, you know? Um, <laughs> right. Um, and things that get injected into us. There's, there's lots of things that we're kind of insulted with that our bodies have to deal with. Um, again, maybe not real popular to talk about, but we do have to look at these things because if we're seeing high incidences of things like strabismus, high incidences of things like nystagmus and other neurological conditions, like why? Yes. Well, and there's why? What's a, going a, wrong? Yeah. Uh, it makes me think of the topic of glyphosate, um, uh, different uh, uh, pesticides that they spray on the food. They've, I've seen some studies on PubMed where they'll expose, somebody was accidentally exposed to high doses of glyphosate, strabismus right away. Mm -hmm. So then that makes me think, in the womb, what is the effect on the fetus of a mother who has um, glyphosate in her system? Perhaps that could lead to vision problems and brain defects. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we know if we know that like a high dose of it all of a sudden causes a problem, then what's a low dose over a you know period of time cause? Right. So, right. yeah. <laughs> it's all very interesting stuff. And um, I'm really hopeful when I meet people like you uh, who are aware of, of these issues and then who are providing, who are openly talking about it and then also providing solutions. And I want to get into some of those uh, solutions. Mm -hmm. um, hyperopia. So someone like me who was apparently born with a hyperopia in the right eye, is it possible to do vision therapy even at my age to help correct that somewhat? Yeah, we can see a decrease. So, um, you know, we, we've talked before, but for those that are watching that haven't been privy to our conversations, um, you know, one of the things that we do in our clinic is that we combine what's called vision therapy, which is kind of like uh, physical therapy for the brain and eyes, but we combine it with an electrical component called syntonics. It's also called photosyntonics and sometimes called uh, light therapy. And we use these goggles, which you can kind of see here. Those are easy to see. They're kind of yellow, but we'll go like this and just give it a nice look for everyone to be able to see. And it looks and, like I'm wearing right now. These are these. Yeah. <laughs> and then here, this one is kind of, you know, a nice like greeny green color. Each one of these filters has a different color. And whenever the person puts them on and looks at a light, it's sending different electrical signals to the brain. And specifically, there are a few areas within the brain, like the hypothalamus and the pituitary that are getting stimulated, but it's really causing like a lot of a web of interconnections uh, all throughout the brain, which go through the whole body. 
And so, um, you know, we are basically kind of reprogramming the brain to process vision. So it's possible in our clinic, we see a lot of patients who come in who are really farsighted. So they may even be um, like a plus six or a plus nine or a plus 12. And we can't get necessarily a plus 12 down to zero, you know, down to the point where they're going without glasses. But I might be able to take a plus 12 patient and get them down to an eight or a seven, which at that point is life changing. But if I have someone who's a six, I might get them down to half a plus four or plus three. Again, those are life altering things. But if I've got someone who's maybe a plus three, I might be able to get them out of glasses totally. Now it does get harder the older you get because it's something that's kind of been like, you know, your brain has been used to for so many years, but we still can decrease that. And so we usually do see a decrease in the, the farsightedness. Um, and even astigmatism usually decreases around about maybe about a half of what we typically see when someone first comes into us. And then on the end of myopia or nearsightedness, which if you think about, I hated math, by the way, but in math, <laughs> there's a scale of like, okay, this is positive, goes to like a zero point, and then it's negative. And so if you have someone who's nearsighted and they're wearing a negative lens, it's really hard to get them back up into the positive range. So it's hard to take someone who's nearsighted and decrease that. It's easier to take someone who's in the positive range and pull that amount of power down because they can learn how to focus through it. Um, but we are successful even with nearsighted patients kind of reducing that. And, um, and it's really just about retraining the brain connection, electrical connection with processing vision that does it. And I mean, we've had pretty good success. I've decreased my lens prescription a lot from the time that I, you know, realized I kind of could. Um, quite a few years ago till now I'm in about half the power that I used to be in. Um, and it just takes kind of some diligence over time to do it. And can I ask how old you are? I just had a birthday, Will. I'm 46. Happy birthday. You look so young. Thank you. 46 years so young. Because <laughs> this fellow, you know, this ophthalmologist who I spoke with, he said, well, you know, you need to realize that you're 35 at age 40. Your vision's just going to go to shit. And every two years, it's going to get worse and worse. And then you're going to have to see me and I'm going to do your cataracts when, you know, like, it's like, you know, so it's encouraging to hear from someone like you, who's also an expert, that you can actually improve your vision as you age, that it doesn't have to be this death sentence for your eyes. Well, no, it's really not supposed to be. I mean, but I, I think it's mindset too, you know, so mindset is important. If someone is like, you know, look at me, I'm getting younger looking all the time. I'm more youthful. Like, you know, I'm healthy. I'm, and my body responds just like I was whenever I was 20 or whatever, versus the person who's like, you know, hook me up now. I'm on my deathbed. <laughs> right. So just, <laughs> just um, there's a difference. Right. And I think there's a difference in mindset of doctors, obviously too, um, because some are like, you know, it's just the way it is. Like you're going to go blind <laughs> and, you know, and others are like, no, there are things that you can do. I mean, if it were true that everything were just going to end in a negative pile of junk, then why do we even try? Like why just, why eat healthy? Why exercise? Why work on your mind? Why try to grow? Just do whatever the heck you want. You're going to die anyway.
some people's philosophy, but you know, I think when you, <laughs> this, this is uh, going to sound controversial, but I think when we get the aluminum out of our systems, when we detox, uh, you know, I've been using ionic foot baths because my mentor says it's not the mm -hmm. color of the water. It's actually, they induce the kidneys and the liver to excrete extreme amounts of aluminum. Because mm -hmm. so people have tried to debunk it saying, oh, well, the water is this. It's not about the color of the water. Right. So things like that. You actually want to grow. You know, mm -hmm. because when you're filled with aluminum and glyphosate and heavy metals and all these things, you don't really have that much wherewithal or gumption to want to improve. Yeah. Like I've only, I, I agree. Yeah. I've only yeah. really wanted to, I've already, I've only really had the desire to improve my eyesight over the last few years since I've been doing things like I work with a superfoods company out of the States called Purium. And it's basically just flooding mm -hmm. your body with superfood nutrition and then detoxifying mm -hmm. from glyphosate. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, I think that's yeah. a piece too. Like a lot of these mainstream doctors mm -hmm. that I'm friends with, they're still drinking lots of alcohol and eating heavy steak meals and going to the pharmaceutical sponsored dinners at the nice restaurants, eating this really heavy food that's probably not organic. Like, you know, not all doctors, but a lot of doctors I know right. um, are kind of in that place still. Yeah. yeah. I Oh, they're getting some feedback or something, maybe. I'm not sure that you're hearing it on your end, but I can hear like my echoing after I talk. It's better now. Oh, good. Okay, good. I can't, I couldn't hear it. So I think we're good. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I definitely think that's true. Everything in moderation. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't ever, you know, have like a junky meal okay. and that kind of thing, but you definitely have to, you know, tend to want to eat more healthy to be more healthy and it is there is a mind body connection with everything and mm -hmm. i i always like the saying that your health is your wealth because if you don't have your health you you certainly don't have a whole lot in life you're not leaving a legacy to your family you're going to have you know to be taken care of more likely than not i mean even if you take ultimately awesome care of your body there's the potential that something could go wrong but we know the scale is tipped one way or another. If someone is more healthy, they try to lead a more healthy lifestyle. The greater likelihood is, is that they're going to be more healthy later in their life so they can enjoy life more as opposed to the person who's just like, whatever I want to do. Um, and I think, I think that we really, as a society, not all, obviously, because we know that some people would just as easily want to pop a pill as opposed to have to eat a little organic and run on the treadmill every now and then. But there's always going to be both sides. But I do think as a society, we're getting a lot more um, cognizant of the fact that we need to watch what goes in like everywhere and yeah. try to leach out anything that's bad that maybe we didn't even realize we were putting in because your health is so important. You only get, you know, you kind of only get, you know, so many opportunities in life. And at some point it's like, you're not a cat, you know, <laughs> we run out of the potential for um, having a good, healthy life. If we just abuse our body over and over and over again. True that. Thank you, Dr. Seinhauer. That's very true. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, like, say I, I were to come into your office, I really wish I lived in Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to maybe fly out either to you or to your, the woman that you're training in Lethbridge. Yes. Uh, I've, I've been toying with that idea of like maybe training with her and flying out every once in a while for like, I guess like checkups. 
Mm-hmm. And then doing the work on my own in, in, the, in the interim. Um, but so, okay, so someone like me, I've got like the hypertropia, I've got the hyper, sorry, I've got the hyperopia, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got the hypertropia, and I've got mm-hmm. the esotropia. Mm-hmm. What would be like, would you start with syntonics and vision therapy right away? Like the person here in Vancouver who I've been kind of consulting with, she's like, oh no, like you have to like, we have to get your eyes stable, then we can add in syntonics. And I was like, oh, well, I thought syntonics, you told me like, would help it because I get like headaches after I do these exercises. So it's very yeah. <laughs> what what would what would you do in my case? I think it's just different schools of thought, but you know, syntonics is actually meant to be a neurological stabilizer. That's really what it was designed for. So it's it's neurological stabilizer. It's balancing. There's two kind of systems within our body that that do everything. The sympathetic system and the parasympathetic system. It's meant to balance those things out and create harmony for the whole body. And so for me, you know, there are lots of doctors who think, well, you need to do this treatment protocol first before we do anything else. Then you need to do this treatment protocol next before we do anything else. My belief is, is if I can stabilize things neurologically with these, I'm going to do it. And I don't, um, there, there are schools of thought that you have to do that first. So, you know, some doctors are like, oh no, you need to do like, um, you need to integrate your, your, um, a lot of other senses first before you can start therapy. And then other doctors like, no, you need to do 12 weeks of syntonics first. My thought is, is I tend to balance at the same time that I'm doing vision therapy. So they basically run concurrently at the same time. And everybody has their theories, you know, it's not that any of those theories are wrong, but hey, I'm having really great success and it's getting people to have results that are measurable faster. You know, we are a society that would rather, again, many of us pop a pill and make something happen fast than wait a year and a half before we see an improvement. So if I can get results for my patients in maybe three weeks, or six weeks or eight weeks, which is common, somewhere between that time frame, my patients are going to have some sort of changes that they'll recognize, then that's way better than saying, you know, let's do this thing for X amount of time first, and then we'll think about doing the other. This is the stabilizer. So it doesn't, to me, with my logical mind who likes to make things really simple, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, okay, simplify. Mm -hmm. If that stabilizes, why wouldn't I want to do that either first or why wouldn't I want to do that at the same time that we're trying to alter and train the brain how to process vision. So that's why we kind of do it all at the same time. That's awesome. And that, I mean, logically that makes sense. So it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing. (laughs) I haven't, I haven't been so impressed with this, with the person I've been working with. And it's funny, like they even forgot to give me the Brock string. Like they wrote all the exercises and then I was, I was like, you know, where's my Brock string? <laughs> oh, sorry. Like, yeah, it's, it's like, come on, how much do you care? <laughs> you know, like, but, um, okay. So it happens. It yeah, happens. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. It's been, a, it's been a few things though. So I'm kind of at the last draw. I'm like, okay, I think I just need to work with Dr. Steinhauer. <laughs> but, you um, know, I'm going to suck you in. I'm energetically pulling you into this. Totally in the in the vortex. It's in the vortex. Um, okay, so my question to you now is: Okay, so is there any value in patching? Like sometimes I feel intuitively like, oh, I want to just cover my good eye, my or my stronger eye, and I just want to kind of look at things for twenty minutes or like try to read 
with the hyperopic eye? Is that ever part of therapy? Um, I mean, I'm sure that in some cases it is, you know, a lot of times we do patching and uh, we will give various gradations of like levels of difficulty for patients to do. So for instance, you know, start off with like a big letter chart and then whenever they can read that without their glasses, we'll go smaller and smaller and smaller. So there is something to be said for that. Again, I'm so far down the pipeline now of how syntonics affects my patients and the results that I can get. If I can take someone who's like a plus three or a plus four, and I can get them into reading only glasses in the span of say two months, mm -hmm. I mean, try to convince me to do something different. I it's see. not gonna work. I'm not, you're not gonna convince me because to me that's like, so the only issue that really happens with say like someone who's like, I'm just going to try patching for a while. It's not that it's a bad thing. The only problem is, is it's not really telling the brain how to use the two eyes as a team. So even if you're like, oh, I'm just going to patch and patch until the cows come home and see what happens with eyesight. Well, it will get better if someone has maybe like a lens prescription or eyesight issue with one eye, but it doesn't mean the brain will put those two together when you take the patch off. Right. It might be better this way, but it doesn't mean it's better this way. I guess I'm just thinking sort of like as an intermediary step, like in my, in my logical mind, I go, okay, this eye is weaker. It's hyperopic. This one's like quite good. So do I need to like before or in tandem with, you know, exercises for binocularity, do I need to try to sort of strengthen this one so that the image that I'm seeing in both eyes is even more easy for the brain to fuse? Um, so yeah, you're partly correct on that. That's actually what we do, but that's, that's kind of like what we do with vision therapy and syntonics combined is we're trying to get the asymmetry between the two eyes to be less. If I've got an eye that's kind of way up here in terms of it's like super far sighted, and this one's like minuscule, it's hard. The brain can't put those two images together. They're different sizes. Mm -hmm. So glasses seek to make things kind of look the same image wise mm. only problem is is there's lots of folks out there like yourself who are like i just don't want to wear glasses um i don't want to wear contact lenses and also no matter what you do like if i put glasses on it still is altering like one eye will see things slightly different than the other because they're they're still asymmetric even though glasses try to make them symmetrical and so the brain still has to learn how to put that information together. That's really the biggest issue. It should be part of a program. It shouldn't be the only thing though. Right. And that's kind of like the difference. Like you've got to get the brain to recognize if you've made a change in one eye, then now it has to know how to put those things together. And, and oftentimes it doesn't just, that doesn't just like magically happen. You have to kind of train that in. I see. So in, in my case, if you were working with me, you would get me to not patch, but do this combination of the eye exercises with the syntonics and just kind of train that eye to maybe just get slightly less hyperopic um, so that the image would be more similar on both sides. Um, yeah, we would use, I mean, we would use patching, so, but it would be very specific guided, specific and guided at the same time that we're, again, like electrically stimulating your brain mm -hmm. to focus better with syntonics goggles, <clears throat> excuse me, and at the same time, like vision therapy is kind of more of a, 
kind of more of a motor thing. Um, you know, it's, it's more of a patch and let's track, patch and let's focus. So it's more of a mechanical thing that we're teaching the brain, mm -hmm. where if you combine the mechanical and the electrical, it's a really, it's a bigger boom. It's a bigger thing that happens. So, I mean, yeah, patching is part of it, but it's not all of it. I and see. a lot of patients come to us, you know, maybe it's the same things that are going on with you. And they might say, you know, we recognize there is a problem. And he started patching when he was two and he's been patching for six years. I'm like, oh, I should really be a lot better than if you patch for six years. And a lot of times it's almost exactly the same as when they started. There's really not been that much of a change over time because the brain doesn't recognize, you know, might be getting slightly better, but the brain doesn't recognize putting those images together necessarily. Just, yes. it's not an automatic thing. So what I'm hearing you say is the therapy involves patching and maybe you'd get uh, the patient to read certain things with the right eye and then mm -hmm. do exercises where you're using both eyes in tandem and then, you know, sort of kind of going back and forth. Yeah, I mean, it's um, depending on what we're looking to do. The syntonics is electrically triggering the brain to process vision differently. The mechanical kind of part of it or more motor part of it is, you know, maybe patching and teaching you to focus differently at different levels. And then uh, once the eyes are a little bit more symmetrical and more equivalent to one another, then we can say now we can put this system together as a really good binocular system. Now, there are lots of doctors out there who are like, no, we don't patch ever no patching in order to be really binocular you have to do everything with both eyes open and that's okay too um it works it does work but um you know i have just found my success in decreasing lens prescriptions and getting to have you know more symmetrical and equivalent types of powers between both eyes my secret sauce is the syntonics and patching combined with that um so and then teaching the brain to put the two images together. Um, and some doctors, again, don't believe in any patching at all. That's totally okay. You just have to have a system that works for you and gets the results the patient wants and you want. That makes sense. Thank you. Um, I've, been <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with ophthalmologists and they, there's a field of ophthalmology called orthoptics. And so that is, it's just sort of interesting what, because in Canada, we have a pretty good healthcare system in terms of coverage. So something like an, an optometry exam is covered. Um, seeing an ophthalmologist regularly is covered, but vision therapy, not covered. Mm -hmm. And yet orthoptics is covered. Yeah. They only, in orthoptics, all they do is, con what's it called, convergence exercises. Mm -hmm. And that's like all they believe in. Mm -hmm. uh, everything else besides that is hogwash according to them. So it's just so frustrating because I'm like, this is helping so many people. Like, why are you yeah. denying it? So it's, I guess it's just, yeah. sort of, it's worked out. Well, it's like that way in the U.S. too. I mean, so um, insurance covers these sorts of services maybe about 20% of the time, which means 80% of the time it doesn't cover it. Mm -hmm. And so, um you know, but if it does cover it, it might cover it anywhere from 20 to 80%. But, you know, so we're kind of like, maybe we're not going to be a match for someone who's only concerned about the insurance aspect of it. I mean, unfortunately, some people have to live that way because of just what what's available to them financially. But, but if someone is like, okay, you know, 
whatever it takes, I've got to figure it out kind of thing. Um, that's probably what it's going to take in order to get these services because you can't really rely on insurance. Insurance right. I know is kind of there for like the big things, but you know, as of a couple of years ago, especially for us in the U S that changed pretty darn dramatically. And so insurance coverage is not like what it used to be at all. So there's a lot more things that are exclusionary from vision, um, you know, insurance vision and actually this stuff actually is falling under medical insurance, not vision, but you know, so most of the time it is an out-of-pocket thing and, you know, they'll pay for the frustrating thing a lot of times in the U.S. is that, well, golly gee, they'll pay for five strabismus surgeries. That's like in Canada. The government pays for it. The government pays for doctor visits in Canada. So it's like, yeah, they'll but pay. why won't they pay for something that trains your brain functionally without the need to cut? <laughs> so, Yeah. And Dr. Steiner, I went on to YouTube because I, I, I mustered out the courage to do it. I was like, what did they do to me when I was a year? Like what actually happened on the operating table? I like couldn't sleep. Like I almost threw up. It's really gross. Like it's really medieval. Yeah. Like, yeah. They cut the muscle off my eye and mm-hmm. then just didn't use like a ruler, like a metal ruler and kind of go, oh, and I saw him poke first. Oh, I don't like, I don't really like that poke. I'll try it again. Like it's like so... <laughs> It, it's not that accurate. Yeah. Like, I was kind of shocked. Um, yeah. So they usually will kind of like reattach in a different position, you know? So sometimes it's like a resection where they take a portion of the, the muscle out. And then sometimes it's just like a reattachment of where that muscle is aligned on the eye to kind of move things. And Um, you know, just like everything else, I'm sure that there's a lot of science that goes behind it. And those that do it have probably done thousands upon thousands. But again, I always come from the standpoint of like, man, it's kind of like severing a limb and then reattaching it and thinking that it's going to work the same way. You know, that severing of that muscle off of the eye and moving it back in or resecting it and then putting it back together is kind of like severing a brain connection. It's not really different from like, oh, let me just chop my arm off and then reattach it back on. Um, And the brain loses a connection to that. And so the brain is then like, well, what do I do? Well, then the brain goes back to doing what it knows to do, which is typically puts it back into the position that it was maybe before the surgery happened. Um, But it's the control center. So that's where, you know, functional vision stuff really is (laughs) so much different from kind of like the major medical model is that we're looking at like, how can we kind of how can we like functionally make this happen without having to do, you know, something invasive and um, by just training the brain, which we know is neuroplastic. So um, lots of doctors uh, way smarter than what I could ever hope or imagine to be figure these things out. And, you know, they really paved the way for us to kind of come back behind and uh, be able to help a lot of people. Uh, And that's pretty, it's pretty amazing. If people want to get resources, because like these ophthalmologists, oh, well, you know, there's no evidence that vision therapy works. Where would somebody go to, to read, you know, the, the history of vision therapy and, and like the, the proof that it does work? 
Yeah, um, I mean, I think you can do tons and tons of research. It's like a rabbit hole. It's like anything else when you get into it, you know, you're like, wow, I just jumped into something big here. <laughs> so there's tons of things out there, but probably two, you know, governing bodies for us that really do a great job of putting info out there for people is um, the College of Optometrists and Vision Development. And they're, they're kind of their acronym is COVD. So um, that's where I got my certification. So my fellowship certification came from COVD. Um, so if you see a doctor who's got initials of FCOVD, it's like they were a fellow of the College of Optometrists and Vision Development. But covd.org is where people can go. There's like a ton of information. And the other place that's pretty awesome for info is the Optometric Extension Program. And they are oep.org. And so both of these places, you know, you can even kind of put in like your state or your Providence or your, um, you know, your zip code or whatever. And you'll, you can find doctors who are kind of close to you and, you know, try to search and find people that way. Awesome. Thank you. I have been to COVD and there, there were some great uh, resources there and some studies and using Tetris. There was actually an ophthalmologist in Quebec, I believe it was, in Canada, mm -hmm. using Tetris with the blue uh, red glasses uh, to train people with lazy eye to work their eyes together. So I thought that was cool. So there are some ophthalmologists who are into this. Not all of them are right. anti-vision therapy. Yeah, there's a there's a small, you know, there's a small group. There, a lot of it is more medically minded. Um, and, you know, so then we're kind of butting heads over functional vision versus like their medical model. But you will find some that do a lot of research in this and, um, that have a lot of techniques, you know, that work. I think you'll probably see more and more doctors over the years get on board with functional vision because a lot more patients are looking at the doctors when the doctor says, no, nothing you can do. And they're going, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's kind of BS. <laughs> I think I'm going to go look for something else. And I probably am not going to come back to you. <laughs> so I think that doctors over time are going to have to kind of go along with that because they're going to find that, you know, people are just not buying it anymore. There's way too much stuff that you can research on the internet and find out. That's how most people find me. You right. know, how do people find me from like India? Well, they've been doing research and, you know, are looking for something specific. So I think we're going to have to start raising the bar, so to speak, because patients are going to require it of us. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, you mentioned uh, isotropics can be stubborn. Why do you think that is? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's just a lot of stuff you can actually watch with behavior and body style. And so, you know, um, it's kind of interesting, but when I was in optometry school, I went to a doctor who actually was in this vicinity where I ended up now, which is very, very like, uh, I don't know, deja vu or something, but he does, he did once upon a time what I do, uh, much different because it was many years ago, but, and I followed him as kind of like a student in school. And I really was like, this is, you know, this is really pretty amazing stuff that he's doing. And I kind of, I started looking at it like, well, I mean, I can definitely do what he's doing. Um, again, things have maybe like evolved over time and, you know, things have changed as far as what we're doing for um, vision therapy. But 
that was kind of how I got into it. Like this functional vision stuff really does work. He believed in it greatly. Um, and then there was another point I wanted to make, but tell me again, what were you looking at? Cause I want to make another point associated with that. Just like the, the, um, like why are us isotropes so stubborn? <laughs> okay. So yeah. Cause I started rabbit trailing on something else and I'm like, wait a minute. I totally forgot the whole main point of this. <laughs> so the reason why we're stubborn. So when I was visiting him, um, what he said was like, Julie, if you just watch what people do, you can actually tell before you ever do any kind of visual assessment. And I was like, what? You're crazy. You know? And then I got to the point where I was watching how they sat, how they walked, how they moved, posture. There's a lot of different behaviors. You can just watch a person and you can tell what they are based on their behavior and their body style. And so um, ESOs tend by nature to have like the ability, like their eyes are crossing. So their muscles are a bit more tight. So they're usually a bit more wound up. <laughs> so they tend to sit forward a lot more. They tend to kind of hunch in and lean in. A lot of times they'll tend to even have curved off or rounded in shoulders as they kind of come in. And then it's a real um, thing. Yeah, it makes you want to sit up, right? <laughs> it's a real thing to say like, oh, I got to sit back and pull my shoulders back. But there are certain things behavior wise and body style wise too. You can look at like how they stand with their feet and their legs and their hips, how they, again, hold like their shoulders all of that can tell you whether someone is esotropic or not um and the, because they kind of tend to be a little bit more tightly bound the muscles are saying that like their bodies usually are too so they will tend to have to do lots of things to relax their bodies they're going to be usually a bit more high strung um exotropes the muscles are a bit more relaxed they generally have a more relaxed style they're the ones that are going to kind of like sit back in the chair, you know, they're going to be like really relaxed um, in a chair, you know, like, wow, we're really sitting like, it's all out there. They will kind of sit a little bit more relaxed where the ESO is going to be like more cross leg, more legs together. Everything's kind of held pretty tight more so. Um, so there's just different things that you can pick up on, on body style. And I learned that from him and it took a couple of years for me to really watch like patterns with the way people walk with their feet you know, can tell you what they are versus tell you what they are. Yeah. So it goes through the whole body. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It makes me wonder if it's caused by the esotropia or if it's just sort of like a, or if that sort of state of being was influential in causing the esotropia. Yes. Yes. All of it. <laughs> so, so it's hard, you know, there's a point at which it kind of is a bit hard to say which one came first, the chicken or the egg, because they both, it's a, it's kind of like a feedback mechanism or a feedback loop. Right. Um, so we can have um, certain, usually vision begets behavior. So vision is typically the driving force. So if there's something off with vision, then it usually will kind of play out in the rest of our body or in our personality and behavior. Um, but we can also have other issues like, you know, um, maybe something happened in the womb and, you know, right out of right out of being born, we've got a particular issue like a torticollis or something from, you know, a restriction or something that happened and that can actually cause some visual issues. So like spinal misalignment can cause visual issues and visual issues can cause spinal misalignment. So it, it's, you know, it can be both. That's the tricky part. 
Very, okay, so I, I have a sort of a personal question about, about my eyes for you, Dr. Steinhauer. So, okay, so I'm born, the eyes are both looking straight, seven months for whatever reason, they start to do the alternating esotropia. So the mm-hmm. doctors go, okay, we need to give him a bimedial recession. So does that mean that they, they, they conk me out and then they cut the medial muscle on the inside of each eye and then replace it like farther back to, like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, what, what did they do? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that's the key is that this for you and I, it probably won't make sense because again, there are, you know, they'll again, kind of like almost detach the muscle, move it into a new location. Not new and muscle. yeah. So whether it's these, or these, or, you know, all those muscles can actually, this can all happen in all of those muscles. So whether or not they are reattaching it, you know, in a different location, which now kind of takes the eye from like this twisted thing here to, oh, now it's relaxed a little bit more based on that positioning. Now it can kind of pull out. Um, The problem and the tricky stuff about that is just, boy, you got to have it like right in the right spot to reattach back in because we can get all kinds of like vertical things and cyclo vertical things that come in based on where that muscle gets reattached. That's what becomes very, very tricky. Um, And it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a very fine line. So But you think yeah. in that case they cut the muscles on the inside so that the eye like would go they'd both kind of be out more relaxed out more? Yeah, I that's usually what they're going to do. They typically are gonna do the surgery on both eyes and so they're going to usually cut and then reattach the muscle in a different spot so that it it kind of almost like relaxes the hold of the crossing of the eyes too much. Um, now, I mean, what I do is when we start working with infants at a young age that are exhibiting these things, like my son, when he was born, he was a month early and premature. He was actually born with an exotropia, so both eyes are out. The idea is that by around five to six months, because the binocular system's developing so strong that usually that stuff is like worked out. But if it's still there, it's, a pro- it's kind of a problem. And so with my son, I was like, he's my son. I don't want to just leave this up to like, let's see what happens. So I did things. I did the syntonics with him and I put him in glasses um, that actually are, they're called binasals. And we use it a lot. Binasal occlusion is used for esotropia patients too, but it's kind of like a little frosting that you put on the lens in a V-shaped pattern in towards the center. And it actually caused him to learn how to converge and bring his eyes in. So combining that we did a lot of vision therapy stuff um you know so his sister was great she would like run around and get up behind him with the toy and you know come right into a space and we did a lot of things with him he's 10 he's got beautiful eyes now that work really well together totally normal depth perception alignment of the eyes you can do things at a very early age so you don't want to you know the whole thing of you can do it at any age But obviously the faster you catch something and start working with it, the better, because it's not many years of like bad visual habits that have built up and the kind of like 
brain memory of what to do with vision. If we can break that down faster, and then we can get you know um, better use of the two eyes together more quickly. So if I have someone at like three or four months of age, we'll start addressing the esotropia immediately. Um, and maybe we never even need to do anything after that. After a couple of months, it might be you know, fine. And they may never, ever need anything ever again. Um, it just depends on the severity of the case and kind of like when we start intervening. But you can intervene at any age. There's no, you know, magic range that like, oh gosh, you're over seven. It's just too, too yeah, bad. Yeah. Um, or you're over 60. It's just too bad. There's none of that. So um, it's really, it's really though, like how proactive I think parents want to be because you can intervene even in infancy and have amazing results without surgery. That's really great to know. And, and I'm so grateful that we're doing this because it's going to get the word out even more. I think everything that we can do because I only mm -hmm. knew about vision therapy three weeks ago, really. Um, yeah. I've seen so many vision professionals. So it's really <laughs> getting the word out, especially in this area of Canada where like nobody knows about it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a secret. Um, yeah. and, and like, you know, I hate to harp on it, you know, the, the downfalls of the mainstream system, but like putting a one-year-old under a general anesthetic, like I was doing some research on that, that can have long-term damage effects, damaging effects to the brain as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm just like, uh, you know, God put my body together a certain way. I don't really want to surgically alter that unless I just have to. There are certain things that we absolutely have to do. But um, and I know people choose elective things all the time. But, you know, the less cutting on the body that was designed to function a certain way and the less medications that get, you know, um, um, environmentally introduced into us in a false way, the better. So, you know, I have some family members that, um, you know, down the line ants and that kind of thing that, you know, they've done tons and tons of surgeries, you know, like so-and-so is on surgery 15, like, oh, <laughs> that affects you over some time. So the least, you know, if we can do something functionally that's non-invasive, and again, I'm not here to say that, you know, these procedures don't um, have their validity and their point and their place. They do. But if we can do something that's non-invasive, I'm all about trying the non-invasive thing, the more holistic or natural thing first. Um, and saving like the invasive thing for, you know, if all that other stuff didn't work out. That's, yeah, I agree with you on that too. It's like, instead of cutting into the baby, let's just do some eye exercises and see, you know. Let's just, just see. Let's just see. Anyway, I just have a yeah. few questions for you, uh, Dr. Steinauer. Um, how common, how common is it for vaccines to cause tremendous and other eye and brain problems in your practice? Mm, that's really hard. It's a very hard thing to prove. And then so it's hard for me to say, oh, I see it in 5% or 1% or whatever percent. Um, right. Primarily because I've not tracked it for so many years. And I don't even track it really right now, um, to be quite honest. But I do know that more and more people come to our clinic. Um, so it's not uncommon for me in a week to hear from anywhere from, say, one to maybe five people who contact us that has an infant or a young you know, child under the age of, say, three that developed an eye turn or a nystagmus within a certain time frame after having received the uh, you know, vaccination. And most of the time when it occurs, 
Uh, well, I shouldn't say most of the time. I'm going to say it's probably split 50-50. There are obviously those who are like, golly gee, don't know what happened. Like the day after the vaccination, the eye turned, but I'm not sure what it's associated with. You know, And then there are others who will immediately, they're like, okay, literally the day after his eye was turned, this happened as a result. So that there, there are the ones that kind of say like, well, I guess it, I guess it could have been. I don't know. I didn't think about that. And others that really know, like, no, this had to have done it because he was fine. There was no other signs. There was nothing else that ever occurred. It happened right after. Um, so it's kind of a split, you know, in terms of how people um, think about that kind of thing. And so it's hard for us to be able to track because we really just started looking at like, wow, the incidence of like esotropia, exotropia, and like all strabismus is supposed to be under around about 7% of the population, around about. Mm. Wow, why on earth are like 98% of my patients measuring estrabismic? And we've gone into schools and we've done, you know, vision screenings with whole schools. So maybe we've tested you know, smaller schools and had a hundred students, or maybe we tested a little bit of a larger school with 300 or 400 students. Mm -hmm. And across the board, whether we were in a smaller kind of private setting or a larger setting, um, about 62 to 65% of them show strabismus at some amount. So it's way higher than being reported online. And unfortunately, I'm really not one who likes to pay attention to I don't really, I'm not like, I like to fix and correct and get my hands in there and help people. I'm not really one who likes to do a lot of the research and the, you know, proof of how high those numbers are, but it's definitely the case. And I, I definitely can say that with my practice because we see a lot of it here. And again, going out and screening whole schools, we've got the data that proves that. Um, so it, it's not, you know, that's not just a fluke. Yes, true that. And then my question about syntonics, do you use them, like say uh, I'm doing the Brock string exercise, would you have me do the syntonics while doing something like that? Or is it something you would do like before or after doing like a good session of vision therapy? Yeah, um, so the syntonics really works in that whenever you're, you know, if you go in the clinic to have it done, they actually have you put your head up against this long tube. The tube is a couple feet long usually, um, somewhere around like, um, three to four feet long typically and so you kind of look down this long tube and the way that we do it we don't do that in clinic we have our patients wear the goggles so they go home with them and they you put them on you have to stare at a light source so we have them looking at like a low watt like a 40 or 60 watt incandescent bulb where they can look outside with the natural sunlight not at the sun, but just like the ambient light from the sun. Um, and so they're doing that. Like we need them to move their eyes around in a kind of like a pattern of like up and down, side to side, diagonal. We do like clockwise and counterclockwise stuff. And um, so they're doing that. But at the same time, they have to kind of do what we would call cognitive loading. So cognitive loading would be where they need to be maybe doing a mathematical fact in their brain. Maybe they need to recite you know, baseball facts or something. Maybe they're creating the grocery list or something like that, but they have to do something that's like thinking. Uh, so thinking and then visual movement of the eye is really important because that tends to cause the brain to fire neurons. Mm -hmm. And the more neurons that are firing when you're looking with this light, the faster the brain is altered. Okay. So if a person says, let me put the glasses on and just veg out and watch TV, 
Well, first of all, their central vision is impeded by the TV. They're not getting a direct light source into the eye to, to kind of change the brain. But then the secondary thing is, is that, you know, there's low level brain activity that goes on whenever you watch TV. And so we can't have central sight being impeded. It has to be clear and open to the light source. That's how it changes the brain. Um, so it has to be kind of a clean channel almost, so to speak. So you can't do, you know, a lot of things. You're kind of stuck doing very few small things while looking at that light. Now with kids, we'll recommend that maybe they, you know, parents get those erasable kinds of markers or vis-a-vis -vis pins where they can write on a door or a window. So the light comes in, they can draw. It doesn't really impede their central vision unless they're just scribbling like this. But if they're drawing, it helps them to kind of be sentinized is what we call it. And they can stay active, especially if they're little, because maybe they can't sit for seven minutes or so to look at a light. And maybe they would, you know, not do that. But if they're drawing, they might stand for it a lot better and, and for a longer period of time. So cool. what you do during it is really important. I see. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. Have, have you ever had any issues with, your eyes are very straight. Have you ever had any issues with strabismus? Actually, I do. I have um, esotropia and hypertropia. And so if I am stressed or tired, like at the end of the day now, I mean, I've done things to correct it. So I have great binocularity. I have normalized depth perception. I don't have any problems with those things. But if I get really, really tired, I might be turning my head and tilting my head a little bit more, trying to line my eyes up at the end of the day when I'm more tired. Um, and so like today, you know, I mean, I was up at four this morning. Wow. So I've been up since four and, you know, so today I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah. Um, so my eye would turn, my eye can turn in and then I've got a hypertropia. So, um, you know, I've done lots of things obviously over the years to make sure that I have good binocular vision, but you can't, you can't like take a big, I tell people like there is no brain eraser. You just can't go in and scrub that out of your brain. Like your brain knows like a specific alignment or misalignment of the eyes. You cannot get rid of it. But what you do is you create kind of a new visual pathway that the brain uses to align and use the two eyes together that will choose to do most of the time because it's better. But if you're sick, if you're super tired, if maybe you've not eaten or the body is under like a major amount of stress, that eye turn can still come back because it's there. The brain knows how to do that. So you can't just scrub it out and make it go away. Um, you know, doesn't work with surgery and it doesn't work even with vision therapy to scrub it out and make that pattern go away. It still exists, which is why you kind of have to do things to maintain it once you learn how to do that. I see. And what's the difference between strabismus and amblyopia? I always hear the word amblyopia. Yeah. So strabismus is an eye turn and whether that be in, out, up, diagonal, down, um, and then amblyopia is an eye that doesn't see well, so it's not developing eyesight. Uh, it is, yeah, it, it's linked with strabismus because an eye that's turned constantly probably won't develop good eyesight. But, um, you know, it can also be linked with asymmetry in lens prescription. So if someone is really high farsighted in one eye and not in the other, or really myopic or really has a lot of astigmatism, then that eye might um, be amblyopic where the other eye develops eyesight more easily and readily. So would you say that I was born with amblyopia in the right eye and because of the hyperopia in it? 
No, not necessarily because you see symmetrical. If I remember correct, you see 2020 in each eye. With uh, with corrected like with glasses on. Yeah, but so um, amblyopia is no matter if you're wearing glasses or contact lenses. It's like even with corrective lenses, they don't see well in that eye. Oh, I see. Okay, so asymmetry, but I correct it with glasses, is not quite the same thing. Asymmetry, and even with glasses, it's asymmetric, and I don't see well. That's amblyopia. I get you. Okay. Yeah. You. And I think I just had two more questions. Um, oh, yes. How do you use meditation and visualization to help heal strabismus? Well, <laughs> I use it for lots of things, but, um, and I, I cannot use it for everybody because clearly, as you and I know, we got to talking and it's like, oh, we just had a connection right away. Some people, you have that connection where you can kind of talk about some of these things and other people are like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and you want me to what? <laughs> okay, so I don't use it for everyone. But for those who are into that sort of thing, and then I use it for them because visualization is really, really important. So if someone has an eye turn and, you know, it's just like going for any goal. If I were to think about like, okay, I'm going to proactively work towards it. I'm not just going to think visualization is the only thing I've got to do here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to visualize my eyes being straight and aligned, but I'm also actively working to make that be so. Then you can use like meditation and like during the meditative process, you can be visualizing and concentrating on the eyes being in perfect alignment. What does that feel like when they're aligned? What does it look like? How do you, you know, how do you respond? What is it like now to look people in the eye knowing your eyes are aligned? You know, what kind of like warm, fuzzy feelings do you get because you finally achieved eye alignment? You know, we, we teach patients, patients to like visualize and feel the sensation like it's like this is your reality. If your reality is that everything's fixed perfectly, visualize that, like feel it, think about it, like stop and meditate on it, do it right before bed. Is we know that we imprint the subconscious mind right before bed. That's super important. And mm -hmm. then first thing in the morning before like all of the like craziness of the world gets at you. Mm -hmm. um, but when you wake up in the morning, you're still kind of in a meditative state, right? Because you wake up, you're kind of groggy, but your brain can then almost like meditate on it all night long subconsciously. If you fell asleep thinking about it, wake up first thing in the morning, get your day going and then, gosh, before long, you're like, oh, man, my eyes are aligned. And you're kind of like living in that phase of this yeah. is a reality. Like this is this is happening. Like I've got aligned eyes. So those things are really powerful. But again, we know that you have to take action steps, too. You can't just like let me just like, you know, think everything into existence. There has to be some actionable steps in order to make that happen. Um, but for our patients who use that and they're, you know, meditating, they're visualizing, um, it takes a certain mindset, but they have really awesome results. And patients that can't do that, they still have awesome results too, but it, that speaks well to a lot of people. And some people it does not speak well to, like that's not something I would ever even recommend or suggest. They would look at me like, you know, I had three eyes. So I don't recommend it to everybody, but definitely um, more and more people are realizing that you know, kind of slowing our bodies down and taking time to just be present and focused and like helping our mind to not be concentrated on so many things, just getting to a place where we can kind of almost like 
I don't want to say blank out, but you know, when you're meditating, you get to a spot where you just kind of achieve like things fall away. You just don't think about everything that's going on. And that's a, um, it's a really actually very important key to a lot of things with our health. If we only would realize that. Our ability to affect our body in, in um, life-giving ways is so much greater than we've been led to believe. Absolutely. And sometimes I'll find myself in meditation, kind of just closing the eyes and then just energetically allowing that eye to straighten out. Cause it's just a very slight turn when I dominate with this one. So I just, and it just feels so good. So mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's happening or not. I'll have to maybe film myself doing it, but it just feels good. Or I was told I'm um, kind of focus more on the right periphery and that'll help to sort of just bring it out a bit. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it just, it feels so good. Do you think that one could use visualization to be, become less hypertropic, hypertropic? Um, I think, I think it can use those sorts of things for anything Mm. because really like the, it's about, um, getting your mind to, um, kind of cycle on the frequency of what you want. right? Right. So energetically cycling on the frequency of what we want. So if we're thinking about, like my eye is getting better. I'm seeing more clear and um, every single day and I'm seeing sharper and brighter and with more ease without my glasses. Um, it's amazing how both of my eyes are coming into focus at exactly the right time and exactly the right place so that they're working cohesively together. Like there are, you know, there are also words that you can say to yourself. So not only with like meditation, visualization, but there are like affirmation things that you can do. um, Again, like, you know, our bodies were kind of designed to heal themselves and correct lots of things that are wrong. Problem is a lot of times in our kind of like more Western medicine culture, we tend to think that we need to cut or we need to pop a pill when um, you know, lots of things were resolved with really more like, I'm just concentrating on the fact that that's resolved. I'm going to do everything in my willpower and what I need to do to make that be the case. Um, you know, I mean, we could, we could probably talk lots of those stories, but you know, people reach goals that way, right? I mean, they take action steps, but they stop and they think, gosh, what will it feel like? What is it like to be, um, you know, a person at this income level or what is it like to own this company or what is it like to go, you know, build my dream house or what is it like to go, you know, do charitable things in a third world country. And so they like, you know, they think about those things, spend lots of time like meditating, visualizing, dreaming about those things, like concentrating, like taking notes, but then they take action steps to eventually get there. Right. And, and that's, that's important, you know, so our minds are very powerful, but we also do have to realize that like, we do have to take action steps to get there too. So it's really no different. You can achieve pretty much anything if you think that you can, know that you can it's not just about like wow what's it going to be like when i'm there Mm -hmm. you have to go like wow it's like this because i'm here you have to live in it like really feel as if it's already manifested Mm -hmm. i love that right when i said that my eye like turned out (laughs) 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 you're magical 
Thank you so much. I'm trying to pull up um, Raluca, who is one of um, Dr. Steinauer's patients, has sent me some inspirational things, and I feel like she got this from you. So I'm just trying to um, pull it up, uh, you know, as, as a fun way to sort of end the interview. Here we go. I can't find it right now, but she basically was saying, because I was saying, oh, you know, like sometimes I dominate this eye and one of this one. She said, no, just like feel that both eyes are fixating on whatever you want them to focus on. Like it was kind of just like a, I just like the way she said it. It was like, instead mm -hmm. of talking about which eye is doing what, it's like, no, like just command both eyes to fixate on whatever you want to look at, <laughs> that sort of approach. Yeah. Yeah. She is amazing. She's an amazing story because... And I know, you know, she had a different profession and she came to me from, you know, Romania to come over here and to be looked at in our clinic. And then she decided after a certain point in her therapy that she wanted to do what we did. And I, I mean, I, she blows me away. We have a patient in Finland who is, you know, has sat for um, tests to be an optometrist in Finland and to do what we do. And different countries, they call it different things. It's not necessarily an optometrist, but it's like she's changed everything in her life to do what we're doing so that she can help the patients in her area. And that, like, like I have so much love and admiration. She's literally one of my favorite, most favorite people ever that we've ever worked with. Um, she has an amazing, amazing story. I just think it's a really huge testament to who she is that, you know, she wants to take the stuff that she's learned, even though things are not perfect. She still has a lot of, you know, a lot of visual things that she needs to overcome. Um, but she wants to take that to her part of the world is amazing. Yeah, it's really cool to see the the ripple effect that that your practice is having and your passion for helping people and um, yeah, it's, it's the free. It's kind of like going back to the visualization, the meditation. It's the frequency of what you're offering is healing. You know, it's it's beautiful. So thank you for. I'm yeah. so glad, I'm so glad that <laughs> you are you and that you're that you're <laughs> sharing both the technology and the it's like it's coming from your heart and and a lot of doctors you don't really feel much heart in what they're doing but and what you're doing it's like so heart-based and i really appreciate uh you coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us and yeah absolutely well it's been fun and uh you know like we said whenever we met we were just like oh there's something we kind of were meant to be connected for a reason and um you know energetically over time eventually you'll come to me no, I'm <laughs> well, well i'm teasing will it's okay but i i really appreciate and i i just want to say thank you um you know for inviting me to do this with you it's been a lot of fun and we obviously we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours and hours about things that you know we have so many similar thoughts on and it, I do think that it's really amazing. Like we always get connected. God always has a purpose of getting people connected that have similar passions, similar ideas or thought processes, because really how else do you spread things these days? Like we have to kind of get connected to other people and souls who are similar to us, because now you can be a mouthpiece for this, that you didn't, you didn't know what to do before, but now you can kind of, you know, you can, again, put that out there for other people to learn and you can have an impact 
um, you know, in your area in Canada and yeah. around the world, not just Canada, because you have obviously with this platform, you've got, you know, a worldwide audience, yeah, which yeah. is very cool. It's an exciting time to, to be alive. And it's, yeah, it's, it feels so good to have solutions mm -hmm. and it feels so good to have understandings and beliefs that we have and not need the whole world. It's like, I don't know if you follow the teachings of Abraham Hicks at all, Esther Hicks. Mm -hmm. Like, I love how she said, you know, I don't want world alignment. I need and want only alignment between me and my dream. And that when mm -hmm. she said it was just so powerful. Because <laughs> yeah. like, when the ophthalmologist, you know, poo-poos what I'm doing, it less and less does it phase me because it's fun. It's fun to do mm -hmm. my vision exercises. Mm -hmm. And I'm noticing some results already. And, you know, it's, it's um, we don't need the whole world to come into alignment with our dream. We just no. need to be a cooperative component to it. And then, as you just said, we'll attract like-minded souls. Right, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. thank you for that. And thanks for being a like-minded soul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much. It's been lots of fun. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll get some really positive feedback from those who are kind of in your community who tend to watch these things from you. And um, we should do it again probably sometime. I'd love to. And uh, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about your practice? Yeah, they can go to our website, which is kind of under, we're, we're kind of reproducing and doing something different, which that's going to be coming out soon. But um, you can find us at Vision for Life Works. So if four is spelled out F-O-R, so visionforlifeworks.com. And um, they can Google me. I'm on YouTube. I've got, you know, about 400 and maybe 50 or 30 videos out there. Um, so if you just look at my name, Dr. Julie Steinauer, YouTube, you're going to find a whole bunch. We also have all those things posted on my website. So there's a lot that people can kind of dig into. And, um, you know, from the website, they can fill out questionnaires if they have questions or they can email us direct. Wonderful. So. Great. I'll put the uh, link to your website in the show notes. And, all right. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much. So I'll send it to you once it's out. Okay. Awesome. awesome. Thank you, Julie. Have a beautiful rest of your night. It's been a long yes. time for you to go and rest your eyes and have some <laughs> food. Yeah. You know, what's really bad. I have to tell you, and this is not maybe the best way to end this, but I'm like, I'm craving like junk food right now. So it's, oh I've not had any dinner. I'm just thinking, oh. huh, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know in my mind is, um, <laughs> my friend, I'm not vegan. My friend's a vegan. He like, Yesterday, he showed me this delicious, like, vegan pizza with, like, onion rings on it. And I was like, <laughs> that? So just as we were ending, I was like, oh, my gosh, onion ring pizza. And I come into the 80-20 night and just, you know, have some, some junk food. We'll see. Yes. Everything in moderation. So. <laughs> you know, like, if I'm at the, at the grocery store and I want, like, for example, potato chips, I'll get, like, the locally made potato chips that have been made with avocado oil mm -hmm. so it was a little bit lighter <laughs> right exactly <laughs> i agree all right will thank you so much yes, and uh it's a blessing to be associated with you so thank you very much well i appreciate that you as well all right have a good night yeah, have a great night enjoy yeah, you too <laughs> yeah i will don't tell bye bye 
Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you so much again to Dr. Julie for the fantastic interview, that information that, you know, more people need to know about. So I'm so happy that she came on the show. Uh, she's got an amazing YouTube channel with really, really informative vision uh, videos. I think she's got about almost like 500 videos up there. So you can head over to visionforlifeworks.com. And if you have any eye concerns, you can fill out a form there. And Dr. Julie can definitely help you out. You want to check out my music? Go to willblunderfield.ca as well as my new Tantra School for Men, manhoodacademy.podia.com. All that will be in the show notes below. Have a beautiful, beautiful day, and we'll see you next time. May the long time.